humanitarian impact of COVID-19 and the immediate social and economic consequences of the many restrictions governments have put in place to try to bring the virus under control. Um, governments have announced large fiscal and monetary stimulus packages to address immediate hardship and mitigate the economic impacts arising directly and indirectly from the spread of the virus. But to date, these have been less effective than governments may have hoped at calming market volatility and broader social concerns, and those concerns increasing as the restrictions on individuals' movements um, uh, are, are tightened. In the UK, the immediate focus of companies and other organisations has been on the health and welfare of their employees, their teams, and maintaining their business as far as possible through the preservation of their supply chain and management of operational issues arising from the restrictions, including the challenge of large-scale remote working and the prospect of absenteeism caused by illness, broader restrictions that are now in place, for example, in the UK and other factors. And whilst the health and safety of staff and customers are the overwhelming priorities at this time, the implications of these rather odd and unprecedented times are numerous and they're still emerging. My name is Sarah McNally. I'm a partner in the Dispute Division specializing in insurance. What I say will largely apply across many jurisdictions although there will, of course, be the potential for regional variation. Three preliminary points. The first is that as an insurance lawyer, many people have said to me that when you have such an unprecedented event with such widespread effects, insurance must respond. If it doesn't respond to this, what does it respond to? And the answer, I think, is that Insurance is not a panacea for all of the various losses and consequences of the virus, but it does clearly have a role, both positively in terms of assets and defensively in terms of addressing claims and liabilities. The second is that any insurance response is very sensitive to policy wording, of course, but it's also very sensitive to political developments and classifications. By way of example, the virus was notifiable in England on the 5th of March, but notifiable in other jurisdictions uh, many months before. Equally, Italy and France imposed lockdowns well before England did. These classifications and differences in how governments have reacted can have a significant impact on how any policy responds. So it's essential to keep reviewing and assessing what cover may be available. It may be different this week to what it was last week, depending on what governments have mandated. The third is that this is not just a backward-looking exercise. All businesses are having to manage significant changes in working practice at very short notice. To take one example, many businesses will be very much more dependent on their IT systems than they were two or three weeks ago. That of itself introduces the possibility of a change in the risk profile, for example, greater risk uh, of cyber liabilities. And so it's essential to not just be thinking at now what the risks are and how they're managed, but what risks are going to be emerging and how to manage those. So on this slide, we've listed the kind of insurances you may be thinking about. Business interruption is the most obvious one. 
trade credit and credit risk policies, I think, is going to be very significant. We've obviously heard about the financial distress that companies are reporting and the ability to access trade credit and credit risk insurance in the event of default can be a significant asset for organisations to look to. A few weeks ago, I wouldn't have thought I would be mentioning political risk policies, but given the actions of various governments, these now potentially come into play. If assets, for example, are stranded or projects are abandoned through governmental orders, they potentially become relevant. Liability, of course. Uh, Mike has mentioned the increased focus on uh, directors. And there's a range of liability policies that could be engaged by the kind of claims that could arise. We've also heard about potential employment exposures, um, as well as DNO, and of course that can arise, particularly where you have investigations, insolvency, and security actions. And there's been some reference to potential security actions already. Finally, I just mentioned cyber there for the reason that, um, again, with a changing risk profile, it will be necessary to think about the whole suite of policies when you're thinking how the risk is changing and which policies respond. So in the right-hand box, I've just introduced a couple of uh, points to consider on various policies, just by way of example. Business interruption, for example, will generally be predicated on a property damage policy where there actually has to be physical or property damage. Where there's been contamination by the virus, it's possible that will qualify, but some thought will be needed. Furthermore, there are many business interruption policies that have enhancements, albeit usually with sublimits, where there are closures in the locality of relevant premises, or sometimes uh, where there's damage to key suppliers' premises, or indeed where there's the existence of notifiable or other disease in the locality of the business. All of these are quite nuanced policy issues and will need to be looked at carefully to see if there is any cover for a business interruption type claim. Trade credit, one point I would just pull out is that many policies prohibit any renegotiation of the debt without insurer consent. In a distressed situation, there can be an overwhelming um, intention to try to keep deals alive and to renegotiate. And if you are looking to trade credit for credit risk policies, it's essential that you do think about that before you agree to it. So what are the key points um, to make sure that if you have these insurance assets, you maximize them? I think the first is to make sure you've located all the relevant policies and thought about all of those which could apply. Secondly, really understanding the wording. As I've mentioned, they're not straightforward uh, to see how they're going to apply on particular facts and will need some thinking. Thirdly, complying with all the requirements. They'll all have notification obligations. They may have consent for cost obligations. Making sure you get those right helps make sure that you don't have a problem down the line. Managing the claims. They can be complex. Businesses have a huge amount to think about at the moment. However, if they don't get the attention they need, you may find you don't, in the end, um, get value back for your premium. And being agile as well. As I said, how the business looks today is different to last week and maybe different to next week. And making sure that the risk mitigation 
um, keeps up is essential. And my final point really is, is about renewal and managing the market going forward. It was always a hard market already. Uh, this has not helped, and some insurers are looking to impose exclusions on renewal. So it's essential to be alive to that as well, uh, as well as looking backwards at how the insurance may respond to events that have already occurred. I will now hand over to uh, Gareth Sykes to, to look at governance. Thanks very much, Sarah. My name's Gareth Sykes, and I'm a member of the Corporate Governance Advisory Team, and I'm going to wrap up by looking at some uh, topical corporate governance issues. So first, taking a look at decision-making, most companies have now implemented their business continuity plan or, or crisis management procedures, and management teams, boards, investment committees, and other key bodies are maintaining incredibly close contact to discuss business operations and ensure the safety and well-being of the company's workforce. How is decision-making operating in these circumstances? Well, many of these discussions are now taking place virtually, and the constitutional documents of most corporates now permit directors to meet and make formal decisions in this way. As mentioned earlier, there is a focus on information and decisions in relation to financial matters, um, and this is the information likely to be of most interest to key external stakeholders. For privately held companies, uh, sponsors, investors and others may have information rights in investment documentation or similar that they may seek to rely on to request such information uh, and possibly additional information as well. For listed companies, they will need to consider carefully their stock exchange uh, announcement obligations. Companies are also reviewing their schemes of delegated authorities, who can authorise which actions, who can sign documents uh, and the like, uh, and are considering whether these remain appropriate in the circumstances. So, for example, are any amendments required to provide additional flexibility should someone be unable to carry out their role for a period of time? And then on top of that, and, and picking up on the point that Gavin mentioned a little bit earlier on, there are some of the practicalities around signatories, availability and executing documents that also need to be considered. Picking up on Kevin's point around directors' duties and the risk profile of directors, he mentioned the general duty of directors to act in the way they consider in good faith would be likely to promote the success of the company for the benefit of the members, but also bear in mind the duties to exercise reasonable care skill and diligence, and to exercise independent judgments, both of which are particularly pertinent at this time. So then moving on to some specific issues for listed companies, and first looking at market announcements. Uh, and just as Miriam said, in the context of the General Data Protection Regulation, the Market Abuse Regulation continues to apply to companies with listed securities in the EU, uh, and there has been a deluge of trading updates and other announcements by listed companies in light of this. The UK Financial Conduct Authority issued a dedicated primary market bulletin uh, on COVID-19 last week. It reiterated that issuers should continue to comply with their MAR obligations and the relevant FCA rules and emphasised that they should be aware that their own operational response to COVID-19 may of itself meet the requirements for disclosure under MAR. And those sentiments are echoed by regulators around Europe. 
More generally, challenges have arisen for listed companies and indeed other corporates in relation to corporate reporting. Uh, in particular, challenges have arisen in relation to carrying out and completing the statutory audit. The UK Financial Reporting Council, as in the case with other jurisdictions as well, has issued guidance for auditors as to how they may adapt to the circumstances. But there appears to be quite a lot of pressure on the system at the moment. And so partly in light of that, the SCA issued a letter over the weekend asking listed companies not to rush to publish their preliminary results announcements over the next fortnight in order to meet pre-arranged uh, announcement timetables. For all companies listed or otherwise, Companies House in the UK has published guidance saying that it will be amenable to requests for an extension to filing deadlines for company accounts, but crucially, the request must be received prior to the accounts filing deadline. The third point is in relation to shareholder meetings. Many UK listed companies, and in particular those with a 31 December year-end, are actively planning that for their AGM this spring and summer. The current situation poses a number of challenges to the calling and the holding of the AGM and what's appropriate for companies will vary and there's a more detailed briefing on this issue available. And then finally from me, and just to reiterate a point Mike made earlier on during this webinar, many companies are reconsidering dividend payments uh, in order to conserve cash and many listed companies are considering withdrawing proposed dividends that they had already announced to the stock market as part of their preliminary results. Whether it's possible to withdraw uh, and the practicalities will very much depend on where a company is in its process and, for example, whether it's a final dividend or an interim dividend. We could not sensibly or comprehensively or exhaustively have covered all of the issues raised today in great detail. We will already have on our COVID-19 hub a number of materials that go into some of these subjects in greater depth. So please either get in touch with us directly or look on our hub if you would like more information on any of the points that we've covered. And finally, as I said at the start, please do take a few minutes to provide some feedback as we devalue and learn from your input on these sessions. Thank you all for listening in and I hope you all stay safe and well.